The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves for Thursday, June 6th, the Monetize Our Pain edition. I'm Marcia Chatlin, a history professor at Georgetown University. And I'm Nicole Perkins, writer and co-host of Thirst Aid Kit. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, writer and co-host of Buy the Book. This week on the podcast, we'll be talking about mentrification, femtech, and the Netflix rom-com Always Be My Maybe. And in our Slate Plus segment, we'll be asking, is it sexist to call men creators and women influencers? And here's a sneak peek of what we talked about. And I have to say that parallel to the self-help universe is the influencer universe. And in the Venn diagram, they frequently overlap with each other. But in the self-help universe, women authors usually just own the name self-help author. Men call themselves productivity authors, business authors. They call themselves anything other than self-help, uh, which I think is interesting. Okie dokes. Um, so first up, mentrification. Nicole, why don't you tell us what this word means and where we see it happening? Mentrification is a play on the word gentrification, which is what happens when people of a certain demographic move into a neighborhood and push out the original people in the neighborhood to, quote unquote, improve it, to take advantage of the groundwork that's already been laid as far as building the neighborhood and the community. And then these people move in and they kind of want to uh, change things from what attracted them in the first place. So mentrification is what happens when a typically female-centered fandom gets taken over by men and then you know, men become the spokespeople for these types of uh, fandoms or pop culture movements. And it's this is a very fascinating subject for me because I had not realized the extent in which men sometimes take over certain things um, and, and kind of put their own stamp on it, even though women were the ones to, you know, bring these uh, items to American culture's attention. And in an article in The Guardian by Van Bottom, she talks about the ways that mentrification has happened in the development of the computer, in the consumption of beer and beverages, in the acceptance of boy bands from the Beatles to One Direction. And so the question about, you know, what does it mean when men's interest in something make it more legitimate? Have you seen that in some of the pop culture things that you follow? Oh, I see it everywhere. I mean, I specifically see it in things like the rise of food culture, actually. I, I think about how home cooking and frequently kitchen drudgery has been put on women for most of history. And as soon as a man starts doing it, he's considered a chef. And uh, most of chef spaces are dominated by men. And we see it in home decor. We have women who've been essentially just being called homemakers for setting up their homes for generations. And then you have somebody like Nate Burkus or Bobby Burke, both of whom I love, by the way, who are doing it. And suddenly it's called home decor instead. And we see it in fashion. Likewise, women have had to sew for years. And then the men come in and suddenly it's considered high fashion when it's Oscar de la Renta or uh, somebody else who identifies as male. And so I, I feel that this has been something that's been going on for centuries, if not millennia. But I've never heard the word mentrification until now, and it makes so much sense. Like, this is exactly what's happening in all of those spaces. Right. In the Guardian article, it mentions the Beatles, and the Beatles are kind of, are uh, like, the... Um 
foundation for fandom for teenage girls losing their minds and creating this kind of wave in pop culture that everyone has to pay attention to this particular thing because it's like why are all these girls going crazy over this band but now the Beatles are this you know if you don't like the Beatles then that means you have poor taste in music right and and it becomes this kind of uh, marker for men to prove how exquisite and how elite their taste in music is when before it was like oh here's this band that just you know shakes their hair and drives the girls all crazy so seeing that put in that um, framework just blew my mind because I had I it was something that had completely gone over my head and I was like oh that's right that's right. Um, same with Elvis, you know. Elvis was driving women crazy to the point that he couldn't even have his hips shown on TV, <laughs> right? And so now, if you're really into blues rock, if you're really into a particular type of classic rock, you're going to lift up Elvis Presley, as a, as, you know, and it's mainly men who are lifting him up. Um, and so I just find that very interesting. And I'm, I'm so happy to see that this kind of discussion is taking place and that someone is calling attention to it. It because it's fascinating to me. <laughs> when we talk about mentorification of popular culture, it mirrors something that happens in the history of a lot of professions. If you're like me, you read a lot of history of profession books. And if you think about um, careers in nursing, um, the movement from midwives to OBGYNs being the authority on childbirth and pregnancy. If you look at some sectors of education, it's really interesting to see how there's these shifts from a highly feminized um, profession to a masculinized one or a masculinized one that becomes feminized. And what happens when you have those shifts is when it's considered a woman's professional track, it loses status and access to power. And so one of the things I think is really interesting when we talk about shortages, so there's a nursing shortage in the United States. And so now more young men are entering nursing school. So I think the perception of nursing will change if that continues to grow. And so when we think about what gives something legitimacy or what gives something weight or strength, it's always about making it very clear where women's labor exists and where men's genius or innovation is allowed to rise. And in this article about um, mentrification and some other stuff um, that we read on the topic, a lot of it has to do with kind of the hidden world of tech. I think the movie Hidden Figures did a really good job of showing that there are all of these women, particularly black women in that movie, who were, you know, the driving engine to a lot of scientific discovery, but they're always written outside of the frame. And I think it's so interesting when we think about the concerted efforts that have been made to try to bring more women into STEM and tech, that is predicated on rethinking the history that has always normalized or naturalized men's relationship to technology. I'd be interested in learning more about the history of teaching, because teachers used to be, you know, mostly men, you know, they would be the teachers, uh, you know, back, back in the day. And then once society, in quotes, um, decided to devalue teaching and, you know, the salary wasn't great. Then it became something that women kind of started to take over. So I would be interested in reading more about that as well, because I think this that phenomenon could also apply into maybe not mentrification, but I don't know, some kind of reverse of that where men abandoned it because it was no longer valued in a certain way. And then it became, you know, a woman's occupation. 
So I would love to learn more yeah. about that. I think it goes both ways. And um, to go back to the computer world, I think it's really interesting that one of the pieces that we read this week in preparation for today's episode was talking about how software was a woman thing, hardware was a man thing. Hardware is difficult. Software is, uh, it doesn't require any thinking. Women are really good at repetitive tasks. It's not that different from typing. And I think that's really interesting when uh, the shift happened, I think, in the 80s, where suddenly um, men were considered very good at software. And women, maybe maybe women just shouldn't be anywhere near computers, period. They just shouldn't. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, I, I agree that that realm is very interesting. And with teaching... I also agree because I think there was a certain point where a man who taught was a scholar. And then Mm -hmm. as soon as you abandon it, it's not as prestigious anymore, men, because women are doing it now. So it's not as important. Well, I also think that, you know, in regards to conversations we've had about, you know, these ideas about work-life balance and women in the workplace and families and all of these things, there's a way that careers are also kind of positioned to be what we say family friendly, but I think that's a euphemism for jobs that are considered either low prestige or low engagement so that women can do their second and third shifts in the in the household. And so it's a really weird thing um, when I hear people talk about how, you know, being a teacher is so family friendly because women have summers off as if the kind of labor that they're doing during the school year isn't really intensive and really isn't pulling them in many directions. And I think that when we talk about mentrification, it like gentrification, it's all about erasing what came before. And so, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. You, you know, you folks are in New York. You see this everywhere, right? A hip new neighborhood has been discovered. You know, the New York Times will write an article about places that have had, you know, populations for centuries. And they'll say the new, you know, whatever, the new Bronx, the new Brooklyn, whatever. And so it's all about erasure. And I think that erasure is so strategic. And when it happens so seamlessly, it can make people very um, confused as to where they fit and where they belong. And so in, you know, in this article about mentorification, they talk about it in terms of pop culture where folks also can just reinvent themselves as something more serious or less serious or more, you know, deep or less deep. And that backstory gets completely lost. Yeah, absolutely. Um, In terms of the work itself, the value of the work, that gets erased. And also, I I was thinking about how one of the pieces we read talked about novels and specifically how the women who used to consume novels were considered frivolous, how women were erased, essentially, from the world of great writing at a certain point, and to the point where Wikipedia at one point had a section called Great American Novels and a section called Great American Books by Women. They just had two (laughs) different sections entirely. They weren't even combined. And... Women were just erased from it entirely because suddenly high art, great literature was written by men. And women were relegated to the side when originally we were considered frivolous for liking great writing or making great writing for that matter. Right. And I, you know, I think, you know, we're talking about men and the mentorification. And and I think we also need to recognize that sometimes that phenomenon is internalized by women as well. I'm thinking of a recent article that was um, on Jezebel. Uh, Jagged Little Pill is Actually Very Bad by Tracy Clark Flory. And um, this 
essay is about going back and re-listening to Jagged Little Pill. and The Alanis Morissette album. Yeah, the Alanis Morissette album. And the author thinks that it's not a good album. And, you know, part of what she does, she compares it to, uh, she compares her liking it to um, what her husband likes. And her husband likes, according to her, Fleetwood Mac, Miles Davis, and the Beach Boys. You know, and she names these things in order to show that her taste in music is not great, right? Because she's like, my taste in music is pretty much either what the cool kids were listening to back in middle school or contemporary top 40. And she she specifies Tupac's All Eyes on Me and Rihanna's Anti. And I felt some kind of way that she named these, you know, two black artists as the mm. as examples of how terrible her taste in music is um but the fact that her husband supposedly has such good taste because he listens to Fleetwood Mac and the Beach Boys which <laughs> you know um <laughs> no one not judging <laughs> I'm not judging because I like Fleetwood Mac I like the so Beach Boys um but also uh they are also kind of like Beach Boys were also considered a boy band at one point yeah they were also just kind of like considered to have silly lyrics and, you know, nonsensical and they were just, you know, whatever. A lot of people didn't understand them. And so to raise them up to an elite level of musicality, I don't, you know, eh, I don't know. So all that to say, I think, you know, sometimes we just kind of think if a man did it, it must be the best thing in the world. If a man thinks it's good, it's the best thing in the world. And that's that's not always the case, you know, that we always have to kind of um, examine why we like what we like, you know, and look beyond this is just what was fed to us and go deeper than that. Um, so I that always that struck me. And I, I still remember this article. This article came out um, in March, March 25th, 2019. And I still think of it this time. Like, oh, your husband liked the Beach Boys. He's so radical. You know, <laughs> like, OK. Well, I, I think the you know, what's interesting about the Beach Boys and the Beatles um, their transition, one could see uh, from boy band to seriousness, is their own kind of different self-fashioning. And I think that there's something kind of interesting about tastemaking versus money-making, and sometimes they don't cohere. And so there are a lot of tastemakers that may want to suggest that something's more elevated. So when the Beatles you know, started um, incorporating... Um, uh, you know, Asian um, sounds and, you know, started doing different types of experimentation, became more psychedelic. This might have been about them being serious, but at the end of the day, they're still generating a lot of revenue among a population that's not taken seriously. So, you know, the Cabbage Patch doll, if to date myself, um, (laughs) was all about the kind of elevation of tween culture and its commodification, boy bands. They earn a lot of money. And even if something isn't considered good taste, it is valuable in this different way. And I think a lot about mentrification is about deciding whose taste can dictate um, what's considered elevated. But at the end of the day, the things that are really earning money is a lot on um, the buying power and interest of teenage girls and young women and women who are interested in popular culture. So it's this really interesting mismatch that, again, I think really kind of obscures some of the dynamics of the pop culture marketplace. And women have always been consumers, um, Absolutely. <laughs> I, I mean, historically speaking, especially in post-war America, we were relegated to that role. We would be sold products while soap operas were on, while men went off and they did the work, supposedly, what you want to call work in quotes. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
women have been known to have buying power but not taste, supposedly, is such an interesting disconnect. And then men don't buy the things, but they have the taste. It, it, it really, you know, there are so many things that don't quite connect here, and yet men get to hold the role of arbiters of taste, despite all this. Listeners, tell us what you think. Are there signs of mentrification in your workplace or in the larger popular culture? You can tweet at us, or you can send us an email at thewaves@slate.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And now for a conversation about femtech. How much information is too much information to be collected by your apps? Those are some of the questions that have been raised as a result of femtech apps and different extensions that can be used to track your health as you try to plan a family, monitor changes in your hormone levels. And this data, which is provided as a service through healthcare partners, is sometimes made available to employers. And so the question about femtech that um, has emerged as new organizations have been tied to some anti-choice researchers and organizations is, can we trust the health information that's being delivered through our phones? Well, I just want to say first and foremost, I have been using an app like this for years, for as long as I've been with my husband. And um, he- First person perspective. Yes. Yes. And um, it was his idea because he thinks that, rightly so, that all of the responsibility of preventing pregnancy is put on women, or 99% of it. And he said, I want to be an active contributor in this to help. Would you mind if I downloaded an app and I can help track your period and I can help keep track of things so that it the onus doesn't have to be on you 100%. And so I, I think the fact that this is something that men can be involved with also to help out um, I shouldn't even say help out, but take their take their responsibility role seriously. I, I, I value that. And I think that women's bodies, we've been otherized for most of medical history. And men have been treated as the status quo. Are you 18 to 35 and a white man? We're going to study your sleep patterns. We're going to study your appetite. We're going to study the way you respond to chemotherapy. And we're going to pay attention to how you display a heart attack. Women have been so otherized for so long that I don't think it's a totally bad thing that technology companies are suddenly paying attention to us. So I just want to get that out of the way. I think there are certain good aspects to all of this. Yeah, I use um, two apps uh, at the same time just to track my period. I'm not in a family planning part of my life at all, but I use them to track my period. And I use two because I just like to see which one's going to be right (laughs) when it comes to predicting when my period is coming and things like that. And um but I will say that I did not 
sign up for an account for either of them for a very long time. I would just kind of like keep, you know, just keep going. So I wasn't getting backed, you know, my information wasn't being backed up. It wasn't being sent anywhere. It was just pretty much just on my phone. But I did recently create an account for one of the apps just because I was like, I'm going to lose my information and I don't want to have to deal with this all over again. But I noticed one complaint that I have is that one of the apps is definitely very focused on pregnancy and fertility and the other is just kind of like no just put in your info if you want to you know if you're trying to get pregnant that's fine um so that was a little off-putting for me and like what if I don't want to have children what if I don't necessarily want to track my fertility I just want to make sure that my period is arriving when it's supposed to I'm I'm just concerned about this because um when I had a full-time job, I used I did one of those um, wellness programs where they kind of track everything that you do. Oh, your it. workplace did? Yeah, my Ooh. workplace did that. And at first I was like, like the people in um, the various articles that we looked at today, at first I was kind of like, I don't want my job knowing how much food I eat or, you know, how when I'm walking or, you know, that kind of thing. But then they were like, well, if you join, then you'll get a discount on this particular service. And so I did it and I felt bad about it, you know, and then I started getting those little reminders like, you know, here's your goal. Did you meet this goal? And I was like, I don't want my job, you know, <laughs> reminding me that I'm supposed to be losing weight here. Mm. Um, so it was really weird. So I see all of that, you know, connected and I don't, um, I'm glad that, you know, as a freelancer, I don't necessarily have to deal with that aspect, although I would love some insurance right now. Um, <laughs> but um, I think, you know, it is so, there's so much pressure if you are a woman, if you identify as a woman, to still put all of your reproductive health out there for the world to see, you know, whether it is fighting the abortion bans or the upcoming abortion bans or talking about your periods and stuff. We just have to expose ourselves so much. And I don't think men have to talk about their reproductive health in the same kind of way. And it's it's a very frustrating part of life right now. <laughs> I, I totally understand that. But to go back to what I was saying, because we've been otherized for so long, I'm glad that we're talking about it, even if sometimes it feels that we have to talk about it too much. But I want to go back to what you were saying about your work monitoring you. Mm. I am really uncomfortable with that. And Marsha, you opened this whole segment talking about how how much information is too much information to give. And I, to me, it's not how much information I'm giving. It's who's using it and how. Mm-hmm. That's the bigger issue. Um, I'm happy to give a whole bunch of information to my doctor if it's going to help me uh, be better cared for. I'm, I'm happy to give it to an app if it's going to help my health in some way. But it depends on what's being done with that information. And these are companies and companies want to make money. So um, that means in a lot of cases they're going to be selling that information um, or maybe using it so other people can make money off of us, like our employers trying to save money on health insurance for us and so on. And that's a little uncomfortable. The logic of all of the health and wellness programs are about reducing healthcare costs, as well as creating an environment for maximum um, productivity among the people who work there. And so on one hand, you can see it as a benevolent gesture on the part of your employer, but I don't think that ever really happens. Um, but um, what does it but what does it mean then for all of these apps and these different types of tools that keep us disconnected from actually seeing a doctor? And I'm one of the worst people in this way. I never go to the doctor, you know, unless I feel like I need something. I need a physical for something else or I'm so sick. Sometimes I'll go to urgent care rather than going to my regular doctor. And so 
when you are using an app um, kind of for some of these purposes of getting information, I think the question about whether the information is accurate and does it come with an agenda is something that has come up with the FEM app, which apparently has been tied to a lot of anti-choice researchers and is apparently promoting the rhythm method as a method of birth control, which we know is not as effective as um, implanted birth control. And so there's these different ways that I think We have access to a lot of information. They're being filtered through these different apps, and they're disconnecting people from talking to other people. And I don't know if that's good or bad, because I also know that there are real challenges for healthcare, especially around issues of reproductive health and getting really good care. And so I'm not quite sure if this type of technology is making us better or worse, or if it's just an extension of the kind of disconnections and problems in the healthcare delivery system. Well, I mean, I'm curious about how much of this ties into our health insurance crisis in America and um, how many of us feel that we have access to good health care, how many of us can afford health insurance, how many of us now, because of the rise of the gig economy, don't have health insurance provided by employers. And if we don't have those things, what can we do to help save ourselves? And is it the technology's fault or is it that we live in a system now that doesn't want to take care of its citizens and um, or that wants to, but that employers don't want to help us anymore? And um, is it a tool to help those of us who don't have other resources available to us? So, I mean, again, there's good and bad to this. And I don't want to, I'm afraid I'm coming out to sound like I'm a 1,000% in support of all these technologies. And I'm not because, you know, as you were saying, Marcia, some of these technologies are tied in with organizations that I don't agree with. I'll, I'll just come out and say it. I've said it loud many, many times before. Um, anti-choice organizations I don't want to be associated with. That's not my position. But I, I do think there's both good and bad to this, which is the tough part. I, I can't come out just on this is all evil either. Right. I think in the way that we were just talking about how we are having more conversations about these things, there still is a level of shame and embarrassment when talking about fertility struggles or fertility challenges. And so a lot of people want to handle that as privately as possible. And so sometimes that means just having an app that they, you know, are putting their um, data into and, you know, communicating only with between their partner until they have something more. Um, And then there's also this idea of because I'm a part of that gig economy, I don't have anybody that I can necessarily keep going to to check in um, about my health. So I'm definitely a Googler. I am definitely someone who is like looking for the forums and things like that to talk about certain things um, to, to get help. And so and I guess I'm in the same boat as Kristen. It's just like I don't agree that my information should be processed in order to create some sort of anti-choice propaganda or whatever is going on. But I do recognize why it's important to have these kinds of things that are private and that you're able to just, you know, talk with um, amongst your partner, amongst your doctor, and you have the data right there. It's much more easily accessible. And I think that's another part of it, too, that before the apps, sometimes I would just forget stuff. Like I don't have, I wouldn't mark down on a calendar when my period was or whenever I had this particular kind of twinge or anything like that. And so when I would go to the doctor, I felt very stupid, you know, like, when oh, was I, the I, first day of your last period? Yeah, like, oh, I don't I know. know. What does that mean? I can, I never know what that means. <laughs> 
So being able to just say, give me a second, let me pull out my phone or, you know, preparing for that a little bit beforehand, um, that has been very helpful. So the apps are helping me for sure. And I know they help other people. But again, it's just very frustrating to know that, you know, you're putting in this information and that's why you're getting all these ads on Instagram because somebody, you know, out in the cloud is beep, boop, beep, beep, booping, <laughs> you know, all of your stuff. <laughs> well, I think that I think the ads part, though, is the part that can get very complicated because there are people who will announce a pregnancy on Facebook and get, you know, a lot of ads for baby things. And if that pregnancy ends in a loss, either a miscarriage or stillbirth, they're still getting these ads. And so um, some of the apps try to, um, you know, capture the information if um, the pregnancy does not end with the birth of a baby who remains alive, you know, tries to kind of take that in consideration and allows you to reset your, you know, data and, you know, delete the app and come back when you're ready. And so there's a way that um, the technology can anticipate a lot of what our commercial needs will be from that information, but it's so sensitive. And I know people who've had this experience where, you know, they start Googling baby stuff and then they have a pregnancy loss and then they're still getting that stuff. And so the question is, you know, what what do we feel comfortable in terms of the exchange for that information? If we're not comfortable with our employer having it, is it okay for Bye Bye Baby or Target to give us coupons in exchange for information about our family planning goals or for these companies that you can do straight to home delivery for tampons, you know? Is that a problem that they have personal information about us? I don't mind being advertised to as far as tampons go or period underpants or any of those other things. Um, Obviously, pregnancy loss and being advertised baby items during – I mean, that's just painful and horrible. That's terrible. I accept that we live in a universe now that we're going to receive target ads. We're all going to receive targeted ads. I mean, not just not just target. I love that store. Um, but and I accept that. But some of the ads, no matter what, are just going to be horrible. And I learned a little trick the other day from a friend of mine. She said, just change your gender identification on all your social media and you'll no longer get any ads that are Wait, anti-aging, what? that are diet related, that oh, are fertility related. And so I did that, and it's a whole new world. It's beautiful, people. It is wow. beautiful. I did not know you could do that. It's fantastic. Any, anywho, I, I'm sure that some of these femtech companies just heard that, and now they're going to come <laughs> up with a workaround. <laughs> One thing that I dislike about all of this femtech is that it seems so focused on reproductive health, and it seems to be just about, you know, are you trying to have a baby? If so, here's this. But there's very little that, and and this kind of speaks to medical research in general, but there's little that deals with actual um, painful menstruation, you know, uh, whether you're having, you know, difficulty with your cycle in other ways. Uh, And this idea that if you're having a period, you're supposed to have pain and, you know, you have to deal with it for sometimes 20 years before someone diagnoses you with a disorder and, you know, the clouds kind of clear up for you. We go through other things other than just trying to have children, you know, and I think that, Femtech needs to, if there's someone out there, I don't know, who wants to monetize our pain in a different way, (laughs) um, can you look into that for us, please? And, you know, 
because I know that I went, um, I've talked about this before on the waves, but I've gone through, I think I was like, it was, it took me about 15, 20 years before I was diagnosed with PCOS. And after doctors just kept ignoring me and ignoring me and just telling me, you know, get on birth control or, you know, just take this, whatever. And it's like, but if you had paid attention to me, I wouldn't have to suffer for this so long. I think this also points to something we've talked about before. It's like, this is what happens when you have really bad sex education in schools. And again, just like, you know, the the ads that are targeted, and I get a lot of them are about fertility, because the, you know, all of my um, apps assume that <laughs> fertility is something that um, is a problem for me as a woman of a certain age. And so I get a lot of ads about fertility. And just like you're saying, Nicole, there's a lot of things that people need information on. Similarly, when we think of sex education, people often think of it as um, for people who are anti, you know, it's it's giving young people the idea to have sex as if that needs to be introduced. But when we think about it holistically, understanding the human body and all its complexities is also part of the possibility. And so if we had really good sex education and we had really good health care, um, perhaps this industry wouldn't need to go to these great lengths to engage people about their their human processes. And so I think that um, Femtech is going to get a lot of attention as some of these companies make a lot of money in funding rounds and they're so good at design and they make everything sleek. You know, when they talk about millennial focused tampon companies, it's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? But it's true, right? There's an aesthetic. You know, it's there's like a lot of cartoons or, or whatever it is that makes it so appealing that this world is really built upon some of the failures and cracks in other systems. In one of the articles that we looked at, it talked about the company Cora, which has tampons, pads, things like that. And they're in Target now. And I recently purchased some of their products from Target, not knowing anything about it. I just saw that it's supposed to be, you know, a healthy alternative. And I used it and I... I did not enjoy my experience with the product that I used. Um, And I think, you know, since reading this, um, that it is because it is not made for me as a mature woman that is definitely targeted towards a younger group of people. And so when something is targeted towards millennials, you know, with the pink or with whatever, I'm just like, okay, that's obviously something that I cannot use. Like some things I'm just (laughs) like, it doesn't matter what age group you're in, you should be able to use tampons, whatever. But clearly, this is not the case for this product. So I'm concerned also about the lack of recognition for you know, people are using product, menstrual products well into their 50s sometimes. And so there doesn't seem to be a market for that. And I think that is another place that people could, you know, kind of pay a bit more attention to that, you know, people do get a little older and they still have their periods. And it would be nice if if people out there in the world could remember that. And maybe these apps, you know, there are 50-year-olds who are also using technology, 50s and 60-year-olds who are using this kind of technology. And we should also be paying attention to their needs as well. So it's not just 18 to 34-year-old people out there that, you know, need these things. Again, if anybody wants to keep making money off of our discomfort, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, think that, I think that's a good place to wrap. Listeners, do you use apps to track your health? Are you concerned about your privacy and the accuracy of the information you receive? Please tweet us or send us an email at thewaves at slate.com.
If you were anywhere near any of your social media platforms this weekend, everyone was talking about Always Be My Maybe, a new romantic comedy starring Ali Wong and Randall Park. Kristen, tell us what you thought about Always Be My Maybe. Yes. So first of all, just a little summary of the movie. Ali Wong and Randall Park play two childhood best friends slash next door neighbors, and their names are Sasha and Marcus. And Sasha's parents work all the time, all the time at a convenience store. So she's frequently over at his house and learning how to cook from his mom and getting all of the love from them that she's not really getting at home. And uh, as they grow older from being 10 to 12 and finally in high school, um, they, you know, explore their feelings a bit and things get awkward in a tryst in the backseat of a car. (laughs) And then they don't see each other again for many, many, many years. And then they reunite in their mid-30s. And at this point, she is a celebrity chef. She's wildly famous and respected. She is opening a new restaurant in San Francisco, which uh, notably she was living in LA for a while, but both of them grew up in San Francisco. And San Francisco is kind of a character in this movie. So that's why I bring it up. And they reunite. And while she is wildly famous and successful, he is essentially the stereotypical Jed Apatow bro. He still lives at home with his dad. He is stoned a lot. He's in a band. And he he's not very ambitious. And these two former best friends try to reunite as friends, but maybe something more. And then along the way, there's all those things that happen in romantic comedy. Uh, Are they going to get together? Are they not? What's going to stand in the way? Oh, no, it's Keanu Reeves. He's going to stand in the way. (laughs) So um, there's lots of, you know, will they or won't they? And then, of course, we all know what happens at the end of every romantic comedy. And um, I won't give it away more than that, but I think we all know what happens. So that's the general summary of things. And I just have to say, I really enjoyed this movie. And I am a little bit biased because I am a rom-com person. I've always loved rom-coms. A lot of them have the same problems. A lot of them have, you know, a lot of them are 15 minutes too long. I think this movie is 15 minutes too long. A lot of them are predictable, but I'm okay actually with them being predictable. I think that's part of what makes them sweet and delicious is, you know, we know what's going to happen, but it's how it happens. But there are also a lot of unique things about this. I don't recall an Asian American romantic comedy film that has, I mean, I mean, maybe they exist, but I know that in my experience of watching rom-coms by the thousands, I, I don't recall one like this at all. And the characters do all sorts of things in this movie that I don't expect rom-com characters to do. For example, I, I think that the men in romantic comedies often are just there to pursue and they don't have any of their own arc. And in this movie, it's a little transgressive because Randall Park's character actually does have an arc. He actually does have to change himself in certain ways. And that makes it interesting. Um, Randall Park's family, by the way, nobody has accents. And that is as an Asian American person who gets tired of seeing one version of Asian Americans being depicted and all of us have accents, which, by the way, there's nothing wrong with having an accent. But there are so many other ways to be Asian American other than to be the people with the accent. Um, And frankly, I also just think that Randall Park's character, even though he's, um, I don't want to use the word loser, but he's not, (laughs) he's not not the superstar that Ali Wong's character is. It's refreshing to see that too. We don't see guys living at home with their parents who are stoners, who are Asian dudes usually in the movies, even though there are 
all over America. They're everywhere. So there, there are a lot of things that are refreshing about this movie. But, you know, I'd love to hear what other people have to say about it. Yeah, I loved Marcus's father, who's played by James Saito. Oh, loved him. And what I love about his father and about his mother, Judy, like Krista mentioned, they didn't have an accent, but we see Judy making Korean dishes. And I think that's really important for people to see, maybe particularly for white Hollywood to see, is that you can be in touch with your heritage, your ethnic heritage, and not necessarily be an immigrant. And I thought that that was very refreshing. I thought that was so well done that you have these people who are very modern, who are here, but they're also, again, in touch with their culture. So I really love that. Um, I love that we see so many Asian extras in the background. You have San Francisco, which is um, a beautiful place. And you have all these people who look like they live in San Francisco. (laughs) And I think that is amazing. Um, And it doesn't, something like that just doesn't get the recognition that it deserves as often as it should. Um, One of the things I also loved about this film in in the way that Ali Wong and Randall Park talk about it, because they're talking about the history of rom-coms and not seeing an Asian American rom-com in the way that we see when Harry met Sally. But they also bring up Boomerang, which was the Eddie Murphy and Holly Berry. Yes, it's so good. And because a lot of times when you see these lists um, on, you know, online or people do these um, Twitter threads naming their favorite rom-coms, they're very, very white. They're very, you know, Julia Roberts and Cameron Diaz and all, which are fine. That's great. But there are also other people who have made rom-coms. So I'm so glad that Ali Wong and Randall Park are talking about the different rom-coms that influence them that aren't just uh, When Harry Met Sally or um, Pretty Woman or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I I really love that. The few times that I have seen Asian American uh, people in rom-coms, it's almost always an Asian woman with a white dude. Yeah. Yeah. And and Asian men are not allowed for the most part in American culture to be sexy, to be desirable, to use some language you might be familiar with, uh, to induced thirst. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and yes. and of course they're sexy. Of course but the idea that an entire like half of the world's population can't be considered sexy um or romantically interesting to anybody has it's just shocking how long that's been allowed to happen. Right. And Ali Wong's character Sasha got to be with three Asian men in this movie, okay? And they're all beautiful. Um, She starts off with Daniel Day Kim's character. Who was such a douche. Oh, he was terrible. (laughs) Um, And then obviously Randall Park, we see him. And then, surprise, Keanu Reeves. Which, you know, several people don't know that Keanu Reeves has, uh, his father is Chinese-Hawaiian. So he he does consider himself a person of color. Um, and, you know, he is often coded as white in his film. So I understand that some people, whatever. But there was a recent article in Vulture where Ali Wong and Randall Park talked about the reason they included Keanu, not only because he's amazing, but they also want to reclaim his Asian heritage and heritage and make sure that people are aware that he does have um, Asian heritage. So here is Sasha, Ali Wong's character, with these three beautiful, fantastic men and there is a very steamy love scene between... Um, I, don't, I don't think that's a spoiler because, I mean, oh, obviously... No, okay. There's uh, between Sasha and Marcus... And it was so well done. I thought, you know, me, I, you know, I think it could have been a little longer, but you know, whatever. (laughs) 
that extra but, 15 minutes that yeah <laughs> that's where that it could have gone but what really struck me is the way that Marcus Randall Park held his own against Keanu Reeves. Keanu, who has been a pop culture god for 30 years, who came on the scene as this beautiful, lush-haired young man. Um, I don't know if you could tell, but I love Keanu <laughs> very much. By the way, Nicole's screensaver on her phone is Keanu Reeves. Yes. <laughs> Um, but there was a moment where there was like, um, not a confrontation, but the two men meet and they exchange some, uh, Jabs. yeah, there's a little, there's a little, uh, testosterone flying in the room and Randall Park held his own. So imagine anybody in the world being able to compete with Keanu and there it is. Like it was, it was just a really good film. Um, in your unbiased opinion. In my unbiased <laughs> opinion, yes. So if well, if I can say that somebody can, you know, actually go toe to toe with Keanu, then that means that they're job well done. <laughs> well, I usually hate everything, and I really loved this movie. Oh yay! Um, <laughs> I, because I loved the politics of it um, that were subtle and clear, and just because I will claim this as a victory of someone as someone who teaches African-American um, history that uh, Randall Park has a master's degree in Asian-American studies and Ali Wong majored in Asian-American studies as an undergraduate at UCLA. And so I feel like if, uh, you know, one of their professors is out there watching this movie, they're so proud <laughs> of <laughs> the ways that they were able to not only do the kind of things that you were talking about in terms of the representation, but to really kind of call out some of the politics of San Francisco, of gentrification, of displacement in ways that fit within the frame of a comedy. You know, one of the things that I think has been interesting in reading the articles about this is a lot of people have gestured towards, you know, crazy rich Asians as being this box office hit. But one of the things I think was missing in that movie were some interesting talk about politics and some of the political tensions that emerge in that movie. And I love how they talk about what has happened in San Francisco and displacement and the really uneasy ways that Ellie Wong's character kind of fits into a type of performance of food and culture. And I think some people in the food space have said, you know, how, how dare she talk about authenticity in this way about food. But I think it's relevant and important. The other thing I really love about this movie is the way that, like you said, the parents were not these caricatures of immigrant parents or Asian parents, that the parents were allowed complexity and they were really funny. And so there's some, I think there's some in-group jokes about um, Asian parents that may have gone over my head. And at the same time, I liked the fact that the parents were not so rigid with their kids and rejecting in this kind of high drama way that the tropes of something like Joy Luck Club infiltrates into popular culture, that the parents were people in these really fun and dynamic ways that worked with the story and worked with their relationship with their kids. And so I just adored this movie. I liked the fact that her best friend was a person of mixed race. Like there was something about the way that they were telling a story about Asian Americans in San Francisco, but not also forgetting that there are other groups of color that make up the culture of San Francisco as well. And so I just 
and I just enjoyed it. I hate cute movies. And I thought this was just so cute. I really did. And I like the fact that they were in their 30s when they reconnected, not their 20s. Yes, um, yes. And I also think this movie did something that a lot of movies don't do a very good job with in capturing the deep awkwardness of their first sexual encounter. There was yes. something about it that wasn't romanticized that I think was really healthy and normal and good for a romantic comedy, that this wasn't this kind of incredibly passionate experience as young people. It was weird. And then they were weird with each other because I think a lot of young people experience that after having a sexual experience with someone. And so I think that they really just did a, they were just really attentive to what people are actually like versus um, using the rom-com template for all of the, you know, elements of the story. Yeah. And, you know, the movie is just delightful. And I do think that it is probably Netflix's best original film right now, I think, in what they're doing. It's just it's just so well done. I I also think that there could have been more room for Ali Wong's sharper humor because she's a, she has a very sharp, um, biting humor where she's, you know, sometimes a little acidic, but in a funny beautiful way like she's just so sharp I love Baby Cobra her stand up on Netflix is hilarious and I would have liked to have had more of that but I think her, their character did not give room for that but it's just a really good movie I've seen it twice already I oh. made um, a friend of mine watch it who does not enjoy rom-coms and he said the same thing he was like okay that was really good so I, if there's anyone out there who does not like rom-coms this would be a good introduction you know a good way to change their mind maybe to say okay but this is really cute um and i also felt it was realistic um like what you were saying marcia about these people reconnecting and there's still some awkwardness because they're you know they're remembering their history and they're trying to move on um but also we're no longer 18 we're 34 however old and we're two different people but you know from that time and so it gave them room to figure each other out and i really like that one last thing I just wanted to throw in here. Um, we've talked a lot about representation in this conversation. And um, one thing we haven't mentioned yet is that uh, the diversity of Asianness that's represented in this, because we have a character who comes from a Vietnamese family, one from a Korean family. They go to a Cantonese restaurant. There are so many different kinds of Asian people in this. Um, Asian people are not a monolith in it. And that's also really refreshing because there are so few films with Asian American people. And when there are, it's usually just a monolith of this is just a tiny little corner of Chinatown in this one city. And uh, this is so much broader than that. And it just shows how diverse America is, not just Asian Americans, but America is such a diverse place. And it's showing all the different ways to be American as well. That is a great place to finish. <clears throat> Listeners, did you see Always Be My Maybe? What did you think? Tweet at us or send us an email at thewaves at slate.com. All right. Recommendations. What do you want to recommend to listeners this week? I'll go first. I'm going to plug Project 615, which um, 615 is the area code for Nashville, which is where I'm from. Project 615 is an online apparel store. There are also some physical locations in Nashville, Tennessee. But what they do is they use the money from um, your purchases to help people recover from homelessness, addiction, mental illness. They provide um, meals. They help back human trafficking. They assist orphans. 
kids who are living in poverty. So they do a lot of really good um, with the proceeds from the sale. So if you are in Nashville, if you know someone in Nashville, if you know anyone from Tennessee, if you're a big Tennessee Titans fan or um, you love the Nashville Predators, which is the hockey team, there's plenty of stuff there for you. And also just kind of like little snarky things about downtown construction because Nashville has been um, going through its own series of gentrification over the last few years after a lovely New York Times article called it the new it city um <laughs> and so um so for the last 10 years 10 15 years or so nashville has undergone a lot of changes um yeah but project 615 is it's one of my favorite places to get you know nashville shirts particularly since i'm away from home and i just wanted to give them a shout out and you can go online project615.org and check them out excellent I would like to recommend this week Ask Dr. Ruth, which is a documentary on Hulu. And this is really sweet, inspiring, funny documentary about Dr. Ruth Westheimer, the Holocaust survivor who became America's most famous sex expert. And it really tells the entire story of her 90 years from growing up in a very loving family as an only child with her grandmother as her best friend to being shipped off to an orphanage in Switzerland during the Holocaust and losing her parents to being in the Israeli army, immigrating to the U.S., going through three husbands, and the whole time really being an advocate for women, for reproductive rights, for the rights of people living with AIDS, for LGBTQ rights, and Everything she did to normalize conversations about sex in a way that was never the case before her, starting with her radio show in the early 80s and then expanding to TV and dozens of books and public speaking events. And um, as somebody who, as a child, grew up watching Dr. Ruth and learning a lot about our bodies and relationships and sex through Dr. Ruth and um, feeling it completely without shame because her message never had any shame in it. Everything's fine. There's no such thing as normal. It's really just wonderful to see her celebrated in this film and celebrated with just love and acknowledging all of her complexities and um, just uh, really, really um, almost a Valentine to her, thanking her for everything she's done for our culture. So the movie, again, is called Ask Dr. Ruth on Hulu. Ask Dr. Ruth on Hulu. And uh, it just came out, I think, last week. And I am recommending It Was All a Dream, A New Generation Confronts the Broken Promise to Black America by Reniqua Allen. And this book looks at black millennials and the idea of the American dream. And it talks about housing and education, careers, love, sex, dating. And I think it's fantastic because each chapter that tackles some of the policy and history and big questions around these issues is followed by some vignettes of first-person accounts of experiencing poverty or housing insecurity, dropping out of college, finding your way. And I think she does an excellent job of really looking at the ways that race in concert with 
gender and social class and political sensibilities, how they all converge on how people look at this thing called the American dream. And so if you are a person who is concerned about growing inequality, about the purpose of higher education, about what the future can look like, I think this is an excellent book for you. Again, that book is It Was All a Dream, A New Generation Confronts the Broken Promise to Black America by Reniqua Allen. So thank you so much for joining us on The Waves. On behalf of Kristen Meinzer and Nicole Perkins, I'm Marcia Chatlin in for Christina Catarucci. Thanks to our producer, Danielle Hewitt, and production assistant, Alex Barish.